Hey, everybody, back again for another week of Securiosity. But first, DC Cyber Week, presented by CyberScoop, is the nation's largest cybersecurity festival. This citywide festival drives thousands of the most influential cybersecurity leaders to Washington, DC for one week to exchange best practices, collaborate, and find ways to achieve common goals. Community events are at the heart and soul of DC Cyber Week, and this is your chance to meet the top leaders in the cyber field, sharpen your skill set, and expand your professional network. Sign up for as many as events as you can and get the most out of this year's festival. For more information, check out dccyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, ready to bring you the world's best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. Iran and U.S. are trading cyber attacks. Another Florida city had paid a ransom, and two big cybersecurity companies are suing each other. We plan to address it all. In our interview, we talked to Kausik Goswami, the CTO of Menlo Security. Menlo is a startup in the browser isolation space, which is a piece of technology that is becoming more and more popular inside enterprises. He tells us how the business is evolving and how the tech changes the way people work. But first, let's get to all of that hard-hitting InfoSec news. The U.S. military conducted a major cyber attack on Iranian proxy group with forces in Iraq, Syria, and inside Iran in the days after Iran shot down a U.S. drone last week, according to multiple media reports. The cyber attack goal was to disable and degrade an Iranian-sponsored Shia militia. The cyber attack's goal was to disable and degrade an Iranian-sponsored Shia militia group. Greg, what more do you have about this? It was very interesting to me reading the reports that, if you read the initial reports last weekend, uh, officials said that this was an attack that was planned for months. And it kind of runs counter to the idea that it was retaliatory. So there's some disconnect there that we're following up, and it sort of goes into the way that Cyber Command is evolving. I mean, okay, so... In one hand, we have an attack that was seemingly planned for months, but yet it was in retaliation to a, uh, you know, to a takedown of a drone that happened last week. So either we are, from a cyber command perspective, either planning things so far out in advance and then sitting on them, or there's just some weird disconnect here. And I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I we're doing more work into it because the planning here is something that is fascinating to me because it seems like we're just teeing up all of these adversaries that we might go after. But if we don't have the provocation to go after it, we sort of just park it aside and wait for it to happen. So there's some really interesting things here from a process perspective on how Cyber Command is launching attacks and how they're sort of evolving overall within the military space. I'm sure we'll see more this summer. Well, I mean, uh, maybe it doesn't seem like it seems like things have calmed down for now in terms of what's going on in in the Middle East. But um, look, whether it's trade wars, whether it's North Korea or whether it's, you know, some other country in the Middle East, uh, you know, trying to inflame tensions with us, it's clear that. Cyber is a very quick way now that the the military is going to carry out like sort of a, you know, first plan of attack. Uh, And also that aside, it's really interesting that this came out right after it happened. Like this speaks to how the government wants to be more open and clearer with what they're doing 
on the cybersecurity front and the cyber warfare front. I mean, in, in years past, we would have never known this occurred, at least within a week time frame. I mean, it would have been months before we knew that there was something retaliatory. Now, in the past couple months, we've seen in you know 48 hours after attacks are launched, we've seen the attack that took down the IRA close to the midterm elections. And now we've seen this attack uh, you know, that was basically 48 hours after a drone was taken down. So we're moving quicker and we're being a little bit more open about what we're doing from a cyber warfare perspective. So uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how this evolves. So it turns out that hackers are a lot like retirees. And when they're looking for an easier life, they'll just go to Florida. Lake City, a city of about 12,000 people located between Tallahassee and Jacksonville, agreed to pay ransomware hackers 42 bitcoins, which is the equivalent of about $490,000, to unlock phone and email systems following a cyber attack. An insurer is going to pay most of that, with the city kicking in 10000 covered their insurance deductible. Lake City News follows similar actions by the government of Riviera Beach, which agreed last week to pay roughly $600,000 to recover from their own ransomware attack. City leaders throughout the U.S. undoubtedly took notice of that case, as well as the aftermath of the May ransomware attack in Baltimore, which knocked digital services offline. It cost taxpayers roughly $18 million after lawmakers decided not to pay a ransom worth roughly $104,000. Jen, it looks like we're seeing a trend here among these major cities. Absolutely. And I wonder you know, when someone's going to come out with a, here's how we protect ourselves from ransomwares being sort of a, a small laid back city or town. Right. Um, and I think it's interesting because of, I, I, I'm starting to get a sense that there is a cottage industry of negotiators almost. I, I've gotten some word that there are basically, um, I don't know whether it's on the law enforcement side or the private side. I know it's on the private side a little bit, but basically people are being hired to negotiate uh, ransoms, which flies in the face of what uh, the FBI and the federal government want entities to do when it comes to ransomware attacks. But it seems like we're getting away from that because businesses just can't afford to say no and hope their backups work because they're seemingly you know, going under um, because of ransomware attacks. So it looks like... Ransoms are being paid, and now this is like just the lay of the land. You're going to start to see more and more of these digital hostage situations where negotiators are brought in, which that that's not great. I, I can't say that that is a, a great trend for um, the way small and medium businesses are operating, at least from an IT perspective. Well, I mean, but it makes sense, right? Because, I mean, you said the number just a minute ago, right? 18 million bucks because they didn't pay the $104,000 ransom, it's it's cheaper to pay the ransom. And quite frankly, insurance companies are paying it. So until there's real laws and regulation around what you can and can't do, you're going to pick the, the cheapest, safest route. And that's probably paying the ransomware. Yeah. And it's funny that you say, you know, the, the laws and regulations over what you can and can't do, I, you know, it's funny because obviously we already have those laws that say, you know, don't uh, hold up uh, uh, a company for ransom. That's generally well, generally disallowed, but it seems like- On the that, other side, on the other side. Right. But no, I mean, well, even to the to what uh, I, I'm saying, it's, it's clear that while those laws are on the books, nobody's listening. Like absolutely right. nobody's listening because the, the, these ransomware stories have not gone away over the past 24 months. So it's clear from a law enforcement perspective that it's not working. And the 
advice to businesses saying don't pay the ransom is, well, okay, uh, I I don't have a livelihood otherwise. So there needs to be some other option. So it's clear from a regulatory and a law enforcement perspective, there needs to be fresh thinking because we're way behind the times on the way that, you know, this stuff is practically happening. We absolutely are. So proposed class action lawsuit against Facebook will move forward after a judge disagreed with the company's contention it should not be held liable for failing to protect users' information. The case pertains to the breach last year that affected 30 million people. Facebook had claimed some plaintiff's information was not sensitive because it was accessible on a public Facebook profile. After all, they said, no real harm had been done because attackers had failed to steal users' financial information and passwords. Oh, and the company said it should be absolved from responsibility to the sophistication of the hack. U.S. District Judge William Asloop disagreed, ruling on June 21st that the evidence gathering phase of the activity should proceed, quote, with a crudity. So, Greg, do you agree with the judge? I, and what do you think about what Facebook said? I absolutely agree with the judge. Um, this is should go forward. Like, I, I, I can't believe Facebook would have the gall to go out and say, oh, it wasn't a financial problem. Like, they have extremely, extremely smart people inside Facebook, inside the security team at Facebook that would probably see this and laugh in in the executives and the lawyers' face. Like, just because the financial information and the passwords weren't leaked doesn't mean that that can't be used to damage somebody's, you know, online stature or, you know, be used in some sort of identity fraud. Like, it's it's absolutely laughable that this is what Facebook put in front of the judge. And the judge was pretty swift in saying, no, this is not a good excuse. You guys got to be kidding me. Um, these class action lawsuits are going to move forward and, you know, you'll have to uh, deal with the consequences uh, later. You know, it, it was not a, a, not that any week has been great for Facebook over the past couple months, but it was this week was not particularly great because on top of this, uh, I, I think at the Aspen Ideas Festival, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, kind of got uh, a, a little defensive in saying that, oh, the, the, well, you know, everybody thinks we're bad, but you should see the way that the, the government handled 2016 and the election. And why isn't the government doing more to protect stuff? Kind of uh, deflecting the blame elsewhere, which I just thought was absolutely ridiculous at this point in time. Like, if you had any sort of anger, where was the anger in 2017 when the intelligence community rolled out that report that clearly said that Russia leveraged Facebook to? pass all this misinformation and fake news? You know, where was the anger when you sat in front of Congress instead of looking like a, compu- a confused cyborg, you know, and a deer in headlights? Uh, where was the anger then? Like, it, it, it's just astounding that the anger is coming out now and Facebook wants to fight now when, you know, there's just a mountain of evidence that says they're culpable for all of this stuff that has gone on, including this class action lawsuit. Like, th- th- these excuses are just poor and I, I hope this class action lawsuit, you know, gets some a semblance of justice for everybody that was affected. And I'm not really sure how you get away with saying that you really care about privacy now and then and then come back and say, eh, no one's credit cards are stolen. It doesn't matter. Um, but also, I do see Facebook's point a little bit in that, you know what, people are stupid enough to put personal data publicly on Facebook on their public profile. Yeah, but you can't run a business that way. There are regulations out there, just business perspective, where, you know, 
you're not supposed to be able to prey on people's ignorance or people's stupidity with, <laughs> with that. I always thought, you know, there's that line in the social network, which I think has been corroborated, where Zuckerberg's character says, I can't believe these people are doing this. This is really dumb, but okay. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the, um, the, the kind the, the dark side of that statement is has come home to roost it has. for Facebook I mean whether whether it's this the Cambridge Analytica stuff like it, it's not just a matter of people being stupid like you bear some of the blame on this stuff when it comes to the security side of things and the the privacy side of things so this class action lawsuit moving forward uh, I, I'm I'm all for it so an Android game with more than 50,000 downloads from the Google Play Store attempts to collect scores of data from users' Google accounts, including Gmail, usernames, and passwords, alongside other dubious behaviors, according to forthcoming research provided exclusively to CyberScoop. The security company Wandera has identified the Scary Granny Zombie app as a malicious program that launches persistent full-screen advertisements on users' phones and asks some to enter their Google credentials. It's only the latest example of a Play Store app that <laughs> seems legitimate but in fact leverages its name recognition to seek data in ways downloaders couldn't have predicted. Jen, do you want to say it or I? Stop downloading bad apps. It's, it's, it's... Uh. I mean, you know, we just talked about not foisting blame on users and it's so hard not to. Yeah, th- there is some user like education that needs to go into this. I mean, we've talked about it time and time again, but uh, uh yeah, like just I I, I don't know, I'm at a loss for words. I, I I can't believe these games even get um 50,000 downloads. I mean, that's a, a pretty small number compared to some of the other games and some of the other apps out there on the market, obviously. But it's funny, you know, reviews are set up for a reason. And if you read our story, we talk about how the reviews clearly show that this is a malicious app. I think somebody actually went into the app's review section and said, this is malicious. I had to buy a new phone because of this app. Like, there are ways in which you can do a little bit of homework and figure out maybe this isn't the app that I thought it was because this app is preying on another popular game that's actually called Granny. I've never heard of it, but apparently it's pretty popular. Um, So it's very clear that if you took just 10 seconds to kind of check what you're doing, this could have been avoided. Um, Just, yeah, yeah, Google Play Store, you you really got to be careful of what's floating around on there because this is not the first story that we've had where we've seen a app go through the legitimate Google Play Store and turn around and it was malicious. And I'm sure it won't be the last. It's not going to be the last. Please, please, please be careful of what you're downloading on the Google Play Store. So Chinese hackers have hit the soft underbelly of global telecommunications companies to siphon off hundreds of gigabytes of data, according to an investigation by security company CyberReason. A long-running hacking campaign, which has breached roughly 10 cellular providers in Africa, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, bears all the hallmarks of an intelligence operation. CyberReason Cyber Reason researcher said, in one instance, spies targeted roughly 20 customers of a seller provider, and the espionage hasn't shown any signs of slowing. Cyber Reason's Amat Serper said he discovered a new victim two weeks ago, and that the most recent exfiltration of data was about eight weeks ago. Greg, that's a lot of effort for a small amount of targeting. What's going on here? Um, 
espionage, espionage at its fullest. I mean, this is the way nation states work in this realm. They will just scoop up all the data that they can get and then figure it out once they have all of it, even if it's uh, only 20 people that they're targeting. Like they'll just either sit on that data until they need it, you know, throw it in a database somewhere and figure it out later, or they'll just expunge it. Like they'll collect it, but they'll, and then sift through it and throw it away. And um, this is the way that it works. I mean, if you read our story, uh, Amit Serper does a great job of, of categorizing it. No one siphons out hundreds of gigabytes of data about a very specific amount of individuals, unless it's for intelligence purposes. I mean, th- there's, no way that it's just not that. It would be a waste of time otherwise. But I mean, it just goes to show that the telecom firms, uh, the, the, the backbone of the the telecom world that we all operate on um, has some really, really big holes in it. And they can be exploited and will be exploited by nation states for intelligence purposes. Um, you know, I, I don't see when that's not the reality. I mean, the the NSA does this too. Uh, Five Eyes does it. China does it. I'm sure uh, Iran has capabilities. I'm sure there are other companies. Like, it's just, it, it's the new normal. But um, this is going to keep going. I mean, and that's what our story says. Uh, Cyber Reason was doing research and showed that it has no signs of subsiding. Uh, victims are popping up weekly. Um, and... Cyber reason, and I'm sure there are other cybersecurity firms out there that have seen the same thing. This is going to keep them busy for a while. This is just the the way that things work now, for better or for worse. So the reported breach of Indian IT giant WePro earlier this year was but one in a series of campaigns carried out by a set of money-driven hackers over the last three years, according to Risk IQ. The scheme covered essentially the whole ecosystem of companies involved in gift card transactions, from distributors to payment processors, with shopping industry giants like Best Buy, Costco, and Sears among the organizations targeted with phishing emails. The hackers employed open source software whose use is difficult to attribute, and they even turned an anti-phishing training platform on its head to target organizations, the researcher said. Jen, what an effort to score some cheap funds via gift cards. I mean, kind of a great idea. It is bad to say. (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating to me because I see this more and more. This is, I want to say, a a low to mid-level scam. Like, this isn't that sophisticated. There are tons of phishing scams that instead of just outright asking for money, now spoof employees at enterprises and say, hey, man, I need a gift card for this, that, or the other thing. Can you go to CVS and get me Apple gift cards? Or can you get me uh, Visa cards? Or can you get me like, yeah, Best Buy, Costco, what have you? And it always strikes me as like, that's such a weird request. I can't believe these scams are successful. Like, Well, and they are. And I had um, a couple couple of my friends, just like Facebook wise, have you know, mentioned it on their, on their status. Um, and, and one, um, said that they were, she was asked to buy 26 gift cards and it was like from somebody like four or five steps above her in the organization, a really big company. And you just thought, wow, right. I mean, <laughs> you would never go out and do that. I would think, but if my direct boss maybe sent me an email, maybe I would, um, 
consider it, especially if I'm remote and don't see him a lot. Maybe I yeah, wouldn't. I that just strikes me as such weird uh, a weird request. Like when when does that actually happen? You know, in reality, where you would actually be like, oh, I I, I need. 15 gift cards from Barnes and Noble or Nike or wherever. Like I can understand if it was around Christmas and it was gift time and you know, you're, um, you're, you're going to get a gift from your business or something like that. Otherwise I just, I, I, I can't see why that would ever be a thing that you would actually carry out. Or you're having an event and it's like the thank you card for your presenters or, I mean, there's so many reasons you might decide you're going to, you need a handful of gift cards to hand out for something. Um, or you're going to trade show. Think about all the $5 coffee gift cards we get um, at RSA or Black Hat on the exhibit floor. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, I guess I'm being naive. I just have never seen an instance like legitimately where I'd be like, oh yeah, I got to run out and go grab 20 gift cards, a hundred each. And uh, there's nothing weird about it. Weird. Um, yeah. It's clearly a successful scam because it keeps proliferating, but um, watch out for it moving forward. So a new Senate report paints an unflattering picture of federal cybersecurity, showing that more than four years after the OPM hack, lessons on data protection still are unheard. Federal agencies are failing to implement basic cybersecurity standards needed to protect Americans, the nation's secrets, safe from hackers. A Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs subcommittee concluded, the survey of the seven worst federal agencies on cybersecurity found chronically bad software patching practices and poor safeguards for personal data. Agencies currently use their limited IT funds and capabilities for perceived security weaknesses instead of using those funds on the security risks most likely to be exploited by hostile actors, the report concludes. Greg, does any of this surprise you? Um, no, because this has like literally been my livelihood for the past five years. I mean, it's it's what I've covered at FedScoop. It's what I've covered at CyberScoop. Um, the federal government is not great at cybersecurity within their enterprises. They continue to make like patchwork improvements. And I know there are a lot of good, smart people in the government trying to figure out ways to make it better. But at the same time, um, there's still just chronically bad issues within the government when it comes to cybersecurity, because a lot of this technology is 10, 15, 20 years old, some cases even older. And uh, it it yeah. just does not hold up to uh, the, the the modern cybersecurity threats right now. I mean, when you still have systems running Windows that was you know state of the art in two thousand two two thousand three, and even Microsoft says, guys, we're at the end of life. Like you're going to need to fork over some serious money if you want us to continue to patch this stuff and continue to fix and continue to give you tech support, that that's not good. Like it, it does not surprise right. me at all that this is still what we're dealing with. It, it's just, it's been this way f- forever. And uh, I, I think that's why the cloud is so important when it comes to federal agencies, because just moving to better technology, more modern technology, it's going to be a cybersecurity upgrade just by osmosis. So Instead of relying on data centers and legacy IT, the more modern technology that gets into the federal government, the better the cybersecurity is going to be. It just It's taken forever and it's going to continue to take forever. 
So in a new lawsuit, McAfee claims three former sales staffers conspired to breach their contracts and steal the, quote, secret sauce underlying McAfee's sales tactics and customer strategies. The three left McAfee Fritanium, which is in fact a rival, at various points throughout the past year. The case highlights the cutthroat nature of the security industry, a relatively small field where firms are in constant competition and employees frequently get offers to jump ship. The complaint argues that the defendants had knowledge of McAfee's sales tactics and customer acquisition strategies, including the vendor's pricing information, marketing plans, customer lists, deal flow, negotiating methods, personnel, and other confidential and proprietary sales information. Jen, I got to get your opinion on this story. This is actually the highest traffic story on our site this week, to my surprise, but it's clear that this is um, you know, some industry stuff and the knives are out. Well, I mean, this is why you have non-competes. This is why when you have um, a staff member leave, you have some sort of holding period where they can't compete or go to an existing competitor um, and go work for them in the same capacity. And quite frankly, I think you're going to get a ton of traffic on this story because this is a huge problem. Um, Salespeople like to jump and companies, all of these cybersecurity companies have a million competitors and they're all really similar and everyone struggles to talk about how they're different and better. And so when you figure out something small really well, um, you want to keep that internal to your organization. And, you know, unfortunately people leave and it's the knowledge that you sort of bring with you to the next thing. Um, And it's a sort of a fine line on what's, what you're able to disclose to your new company and what you can't. And, it'll just be interesting to watch on where this lawsuit goes. Yeah. I mean, isn't a big part of this just business as usual? Like, isn't this just, you know, the game? Like, this is what it is to uh, be in sales and be in tech sales. Very high paced, very, um, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, people moving, bodies moving around, uh, real high stakes. You know, it's, it's, uh, a lot of this just seems like just anger, like this lawsuit, it just seems to be bitter and petty. Like uh, I know there's NDAs and non-competes and things like that, but at the same time, it, this just strikes me as, you know, this is the business that, that we're in, like deal with it. Uh, McAfee seems like, you know, they lost some talent, go find some other talent. Like it's just, you know, the lay of the land. Well, I think that's that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, you're scared that your competitor is going to um, get the edge up. And they were probably really great salespeople. And there probably is something that they spent a lot of money on in their sales process to really perfect and and that works. And so they're afraid of people leaving to, you know, the next biggest threat, um, which I guess is the case here. Yeah. Um you know, again, if this if this lawsuit goes through and it you know it continues down the, the path of court, and it'll be interesting to watch, and I think it might change um, the way people behave in the future. Okay, and it finally looks like uh, the money has sort of slowed down a little bit. Uh, Jen, you talked about on last episode about how venture firms you know, you know spend June kind of closing out their portfolio. Uh, and it's very clear that they've done that because we've only really had two very small raises come up. This week, one is Great Horn. They closed a $13 million funding round co-led by RRE Ventures and 406 Ventures with participation from a bunch of their other existing 
investors. Greathorn secures enterprise email threats all throughout uh, the life cycle at time of delivery and even post-delivery during incident response. And then also Vulcan Cyber announced a 10 million Series A funding. Uh, the company enables companies to watch over cybersecurity gaps in automotive and uh, vehicles. Definitely something uh, that needs more companies in the space. So that was really it. So Jen, you were right uh, on the nose. Not a lot going on this week. Everybody's heading into the fourth and it seems like uh, the VC and private equity sort of shut it down for the summer. Yeah, I think we're going to see this as maybe the last two announcements we'll make um, until September. So, you know, for what that's worth. Um, but at least it closes out on on some interesting interesting companies. Yeah, the uh, Great Horn, I had actually never heard of them. And I'm very interested to hear about what exactly it is they do with regards to email, even from a post-delivery standpoint, because I've that's actually something that I've never heard of uh, as far as email security goes. Like, wh- what are you doing post-delivery that's different from just, you know, wiping a computer if there's ransomware or, you know, doing IR if there's a payload that has come from uh, a phishing email or something like that. So we'll have to get in touch. Yeah, we'll have to get them on. And, you know, and I think it's time we have uh, four or six ventures on as well. They've been doing some interesting cybersecurity deals and uh, out of Boston and, and certainly... Um, have an interesting perspective. Yeah. And that strikes me that they're baseball fans too, because that 406 is a clear nod to Ted Williams and the Boston Red Sox. So very interesting company or very interesting firm there that I definitely want to talk to. So speaking of talking to other experts, let's get to our interview with Menlo Security CTO, Kausik Goroswamy. We talked to Kausik on the sidelines of the Gartner Conference a couple weeks ago, talking about browser isolation and how this space, more and more companies are moving into it and how he sees his company evolving. Check it out. Okay, joining us now is Kausik Goroswamy, the CTO of Menlo Security. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So first off, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into cybersecurity. Sure. My my first foray was in the around the 2000 time frame where okay. I built and architected the very first commercial inline intrusion prevention prevention system okay. uh, at a company called OneSecure. And that was sort of my foray into it. And since then, I have been to a company called NetScreen through an acquisition and then Juniper Networks. And then I had my own security company for a number of years. Um, and then post-acquisition, decided to come and join Menlo in the very, very early days. You know, it's funny that you bring up the IPS part of this because I feel that that's where a lot of people got their start. Yeah. They, you're, you're not the first person that I've talked to at Gartner that's like, oh, yeah, I, I built in an IPS uh-huh. system and now it's spun out into everything else. Many other so things, yeah. That's really interesting that that seems to be the uh, jumping off point for all the technology that we have seen growing at conferences like this. Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, I think up until then, all we really had were some proxies and some firewalls with some very coarse uh, controls, and it was pretty much either you allow something or you block something. So the IP has really sort of started the trend of let me inspect a little bit more about what's going on so we can do much more fine-grained analysis and then do this more selective blocking and also respond to different types of threats. So the the IPS market has clearly blown into something Many, else yeah. all, all together now. And now uh, you have products like Menlo Security, the company that you're working for right now. And I know that Menlo does uh, a cloud isolation platform, but tell us a little bit more about sure. exactly how that works. Uh, so a lot of the, you know, so the origins of this company, you know, the founders and some of the other executives and, and key members in the company 
we've all been in this industry for a long time, and frankly, we were pretty disillusioned that after 20 years and $20 billion of whatever investment that people still getting hacked. And I think we, we sort of stepped back and thought about now that there's the cloud with, you know, with infinite capacity, if we were to fundamentally rethink security, can we build a solution that's 100% safe for certain types of threats? And that's really the origin of the company. And where we landed was, if you look at how companies get breached, 99% of the time, I might be off by a percent or so, but it's usually web and email. Somebody going to some website or somebody clicking on a link, you know, maybe they won the Caribbean Cruise Award and they were really excited and they clicked on the link. <laughs> of course, it's always that, right? <laughs> and then they get infected. And that's really the you know, majority of it. So we really thought about how would we take that 99% and just make that problem go away? Okay, and that was the origin of you know of what we're you know how we really got started and where we are now. So that one hundred percent solving things one hundred percent. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit sure. because do you ever get eyebrow raises on that? Because there's always that saying you know there's no magic bullet or there's no silver bullet to solve cybersecurity. So when you get to that point where you're like oh one hundred percent we're solved that uh, so usually some eyebrows usually raise. the eyebrows do go up. But if you if you if I just take a you know a couple of sentences to describe how we're different, okay. then people actually understand it. And and here's here's kind of how it goes. If you look at every single security product that's out there, including the stuff that I've built in the past, okay, they all fundamentally try to figure out if something is good or bad. Okay, so I'm going to a website. Is this website good or is it bad? I'm about to click on a link that's a PDF. You know, maybe it's weaponized, maybe it's not. Is it good? Is it bad? And then they. The way they make the decision, um, you know, there's a lot of variance in how people do it. There's machine learning, there's AI, signature, threat intel, you name it, right? All the newfangled stuff. But end of the day, they're going to make a decision to let you access that site or not. Okay? When I say site, it could be an attachment, it could be a link, it could be a PDF, anything, right? And we believe that model is you playing dice, you're just rolling dice okay. and hoping for the best. Because ultimately, if you make a wrong decision, you end up connecting to the site and you get infected. And if you block it, then people are pissed and they're going to complain like, you're not letting me do my job. Right. Right. And so the way we thought about it is, and this is where the concept of browser isolation comes in. Okay. Instead of you connecting to the internet directly, you go through us and we give you a browser in the cloud which serves on behalf of you. And it takes the bullet if necessary for you. So really that model of creating this virtual air gap between you and the internet, we call it internet isolation. And the idea is you never come into touch with the website that you're trying to access or the document that you're trying to download. And there's two key breakthroughs that sets us apart from everybody else. Okay. So the first one is we can do this at massive, massive scale. We've got companies and customers that have hundreds of thousands of employees where every employee going to every part of the internet is getting isolated. Okay. And so we've proven in the last three, four years that we can do this at massive scale using our global cloud. And the second thing that sets us apart is we figured out some pretty cool ideas to take what the isolated browser sees and somehow mirror that back to your own browser such that you cannot tell that you're being isolated. And for us, that marriage was, you know, of native user experience while giving you that promise of perfect security was very critical because security has always been about trade-off with user experience. The better the security, the more people scare you into not doing stuff, right? Like, oh my God, don't go here. Don't open this. Don't click on that. Don't, you know... And I think that model is kind of breaking down, and, and that's really what sets us apart. Yeah, so 
like you were saying, this tech relies heavily on the cloud and moving users away from actually using endpoints. Do you see that as a trend moving forward in enterprises where you're going to eventually take your employees and try to eliminate as much as possible the tech that they're actually touching? Um, I, th I think we are moving towards the trend. If not the endpoint, I think from a security defenses perspective, people are starting to think about the total cost of ownership of running boxes on-prem and managing them and keeping, you know, keeping them operationally uh, going. So the move to the cloud, I think it's, it's, it's incredibly important for a couple of reasons. One is the TCO of just managing and operationalizing it. Okay. I think there's also a broader trend with roaming workers and branch offices, et cetera. You can't have everybody come to the central network and then exit out of the internet. And so in this model, you need something in, in between you and the rest of the internet, whether you're accessing random websites or sanctioned apps or what have you. And so that move to the cloud, I think, is definitely happening, and we're seeing that uh, very clearly. So you're talking about uh, the cost effectiveness of this, and I know that browser isolation tends to be expensive when looked upon just like your traditional endpoint. So I'm wondering, you know, how are you making it cost effective or how are you telling enterprises that, look, this is actually going to protect you more? Because I know Gartner has said the average business spends between like 44 and $68 when it comes to mm -hmm. endpoint detection. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, how do you talk to enterprises that are looking at this technology, but going, okay, well, m my spend per employee when it right. comes to just traditional endpoint is a lot cheaper than what I know about browser isolation technology. So I think the cost needs to be looked at from the perspective of what else it is actually saving you. Okay. Right? You can't directly compare the efficacy and the benefits of browser isolation against, let's say, a proxy or an endpoint agent. Um, and the reason is this. Once you isolate everything, many of the operational overhead of running endpoint software, of running proxies, of running everything on-prem, simply disappears and goes away. Let me give you some examples. Okay. The first one is alerts. When we isolate something, we don't have alerts. Most people do a double take when I say that because people are used to getting alerts and triaging them and dealing with false positive right. and false. When you isolate, who cares if it's good or bad? It never touched you. So you got what you wanted, which is access to the internet, but yet without the risk, the alerts go away. And a lot of people also, from a SOC perspective, they spend time looking at where people went and in hindsight, if it was bad, they would go and take that employee's laptop away to re-image it and clean it out and give it back. So instant productivity loss. When you isolate, you don't have to do that anymore, right? So there's just a lot of efficiency that comes once you isolate and you create this virtual air gap, which more than justifies the cost because you're not getting breached. I mean, ultimately, a security solution's job is to make sure that you don't get infected. And, of course. And there's really nothing other than isolation that actually gives you that, right? Otherwise, it's, you know, people talk about zero trust internet. I think it's more like kind of trust internet. Okay. <laughs> but with internet isolation, you really truly get, get to that zero. So how does mobile fit into this? Because we know employees want to use their devices more and more yeah. and connecting back to that network. But obviously, I don't know if browser isolation technology, if we're ever going to see it on a mobile side of things. So how do you see BYOD and, and that mobile drive really fitting into what you, know, you provide? So talking to people and our customers and our clients, I think the biggest threat that they feel from a mobile perspective is phishing because everybody checks email you know, on their mobile and you click on a link and it looks like a favorite bank asking you to research your password and you can't really tell on the mobile device whether it's real or not because it just doesn't have that screen space to investigate. Um, so for us, when we looked at internet isolation, 
the, the running the browser in the cloud is at the heart of everything that we do. But from a product perspective, we have a web product and an email product. And what the email product does is super, super simple in terms of as the emails come into you, we are able to essentially change all of the links so that instead of, let's say, abc.com, it's actually going to say menlo.com slash abc.com. So okay. we change the links such that when you click on it, we end up isolating that link, keeping you safe. And because we control the browser, we can also change that site into a read-only mode where you can't type in your password. Okay. So there's some capabilities That was going to be my next question yeah. because credential stuffing or, or just pulling creds Correct. overall is, is such a big threat that yeah. I'm wondering, it doesn't matter if you spin up, you know, isolation upon isolation upon isolation. If I hand over the keys, I'm still going to be able right. to, to So get to ask a you network. a question about the specifically the bring your own device on the, in the context of mobile is because we changed links when it hits your mobile device, when you click on it, it takes you to us. We don't really need any presence, even on an unmanaged endpoint, okay. unmanaged device. You just use your favorite phone, and you click on it, and we isolate you, right? Um, the thing about phishing is, you know, again, if you look at the phishing, every single solution that, that's out there is using all kinds of techniques to figure out whether something is a phishing site or not. Okay, we don't believe in that model at all. Okay, and so the way, you know, the simplest way to explain it is like just between you and me, if you count the number of internet sites in which we have a registered account, okay. you take the usual suspect, right? So it's probably Amazon for shopping, you got LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, uh, maybe, you know, maybe your bank, maybe two of them, you got PayPal, uh, mortgage, you know, you kind of add up a few things, it's gonna, you know, news and entertainment, Netflix, Hulu, it's gonna be 200 websites, right? okay? So this is not exactly how our product works, but it's a great analogy. So the way we think about it is those 200 websites, we wanna isolate, just in case, and let you type in your credentials and go because we know it's not a phishing site. Rest of the internet, there's no business for us to type in a username and password. So even if something looks like a PayPal or your favorite bank, just let's not even try to figure out if it's a phishing site. Let's just block you, know, you from typing anything and problem solved. So you were talking about scale earlier. I would love to hear about your work on the federal government side. Yeah. We do have a big government audience. So it's hard to get uh, a bigger scale than working <laughs> with the federal government. Yeah. So uh, could you talk a little bit about the work that you're seeing with the federal government and how that has contributed to the scale that you're operating Yeah, so, at? The, uh, so the, the public information is, you know, DISA actually put out an RFP okay. for what they call cloud-based internet isolation. Okay. Now, their requirement ask was very simple. We've got 3.5 million personnel in our organization, and we don't want to deal with web risk anymore. So we want to create this virtual air gap using browser isolation technologies so that every one of our personnel, when they go to the internet, we can be safe. I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but that's the broad ask, right? And we actually won the initial sort of you know, proof of concept in the pilot, okay. and we're in the process of rolling things out. And I think it's, a, it's about a 50,000 user proof of concept which of course, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of rolling along that path. And if, you know, we're, we're successful, and I think we will be, uh, it's, we're gonna be the largest internet isolation, you know, provider in the world, because we're gonna be isolating 3.5 million users um, across the entire organization. Wow, that's pretty impressive from the standpoint of, look, I know there are other browser isolation products and secure web gateways, but to, you know, see a startup in your space dealing with like the semantics and other yeah. larger companies that are also offering these products that's pretty impressive that you've managed to get I, I think that it's scale. largely due to uh, you know um, our 
We went from really no customers in the early days to JP Morgan being one of the very first, okay. which is 250,000 users. So we started with the biggest and the baddest and the more complex environment, if you will. And while it was a struggle, it's proving out to be invaluable, that experience of understanding those types of you know uh, networks and the different integrations that we have to do to make it all work and the workflow that comes with, you know, when you are an organization with 100,000 people, a lot of people are going to be clicking on a lot of different links. And so we have to make sure that this technology, one, skills, and number two, the end user, you know, not, you know, they can't really tell whether they're being isolated or not. That was very important to us. And just having those sort of market customers and experience and also of operating a global cloud with millions of users using it gives us tremendous confidence that, you know, um, we're going to be successful with this deal. Great. So, Kazakh, every interview on Curiosity ends on a random question. So, for you, I'm wondering, what is a favorite souvenir that you have collected across your travels? Whoa. <laughs> um, favorite souvenir... I, I can't think of anything, but um, I would say maybe uh, we were, my family was in um, in Tibet not too long ago, okay. and they actually have um, a little engraving, it's actually called the Infinite Happiness. Okay. It's, it's a, it's, you can look it up, it's on Wikipedia, etc., okay. but uh, I thought that was really, really cool. Okay, I love when you said it was an engraving, like just on a stone? Yeah, or? it's on a piece of stone. It could okay. also, sometimes you'd also see it on fabric and things like that, Okay. so I thought it was super cool. Nice. Well, hey, you came up with it. You said you weren't <laughs> going to come up with it, and then you came up with it right away. Perfect. Uh, really appreciate you hopping aboard. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Cal for joining us. Really, really interesting conversation. And that is all for this week. We are going to be off next week. Enjoy the summer. Enjoy the fourth. Uh, just kick your feet up, rest, relax, and we will be back in two weeks. As always, stay curious.